Well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we will be this morning. Um, we are walking through the book of Hebrews, and we have hit chapter 4. Uh, if, you are, if you were out of town last week, we started, uh, we debuted a new worship guide. Um, and so the big plus for this is you'll have announcements on the back side right here. And then if you open it up, you have the sermon notes, the uh, worship guide. Uh, also, before we get started this morning, uh, I want to give you a game plan um, for the next couple months. Uh, after today, we're going to spend two more weeks in Hebrews, and then we're going to take a break. So when we started Hebrews, we started it with a realization that it's a very long book uh, and that we might take a break. Well, um, two weeks before Easter, uh, we will take our first significant break from the book of Hebrews. So we'll finish up chapter 5, all the way through chapter 5. We'll take a break for Palm Sunday for Easter. And then the week after Easter, we're going to start a three-week series called Knowing God's Will. Uh, so there'll be a series on just how do we um, seek and find out God's will for our lives. And uh, then we'll jump back into Hebrews chapter 6 uh, toward the end of May. And so that's the plan. We'll be in Hebrews 4 this morning. Um, if you remember from last week, uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19 is where we covered. Uh, if you missed it, it's online. Um, lots of good stuff in that passage. It was a commentary on Psalm 95. Do you remember that? Uh, Psalm 95. Uh, Hebrews itself, the book, is, is much similar. It's very similar to a sermon. Uh, it called itself a word of exhortation. Um, which in the New Testament means a sermon. Uh, and what we have here is a sermon, a commentary on Psalm 95. And this is chapter 4, this passage we'll look at. Uh, if you'd like to think of it, think of it like this, it's, it's part 2 of that sermon. Uh, so last week was part 1, and then this is part 2 as we head into chapter 4 on Psalm 95. If you remember from last week, a quick recap to get us ready. Um, Psalm 95 is a call to worship. Uh, so it is a song that would have been sung to get people's hearts ready to worship. It invites people into the worship and praise of God. It also reminds them who God is. He's a great God. He's our God. And then it ends, and it's quoted here in, in chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, um, with this warning based on an ancient story of unbelief. And so the story is um, Numbers 14. And, and what, the, what was happening there is God had saved the Israelites. He had rescued them out of Egypt. Uh, and he had led them right up to the brink, right up to the border of the promised land. And at the promised land, they, they started having doubts. They started doubting God, his ability to provide for them. That doubt led to disobedience. They said, we're not going to go into the land. And then God punishes them. In his wrath, he swears, you will die in the wilderness, and your kids will enter into the land. And so last week, um, the author of Hebrews looks at that psalm, looks at that story, and says, hey, there's a lot of similarities between their situation and our situation. They were delivered, redeemed, and then on the brink, right on the border of having their promises fulfilled, entering into the promised land. And you and I are in a similar situation. Christ has won the battle for us on the cross. We've been converted. Um, in the New Testament, baptism corresponds to the Red Sea. We've been brought into God's family. And now you and I are right before the fulfillment of all of God's promises, right before eternal life. And so last week, the author of Hebrews drew out some lessons for us. Remember, the first lesson was... Um, take care that there's no unbelief in your heart. Because unbelief will lead to disobedience, actions that, that come out of your thoughts, out of your beliefs. It says, make sure there's no unbelief. And we talked about um, taking a pulse on your heart and being able to see where and when there is unbelief so you can act on it. The second lesson was, if you want to watch unbelief, you're going to need more than just yourself. You're going to need a community. You're going to need people around you. He says, exhort one another, encourage, rebuke, take care of each other. This is his third point for us. Well, that beginning is important, but finishing is just as important. Um, it's, it's a good thing that we began our faith journey, but it's just as important that we finish it. And then he ended with some warnings for us. Um, as we head into chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1, Hebrews 4.1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in front of you under the seat. Uh, Hebrews 4.1, one. 
He's going to continue talking about Psalm 95, uh, but he's going to emphasize a different aspect of the psalm. Uh, and we'll see this here. Hebrews 4, we'll pick up in verse 1. This is a wordy and complex uh, passage, um, but we will get through it. Uh, Therefore, Hebrews 4, 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so he moves in a sense from um, the negative aspect of that story, of that psalm, to a more positive aspect. So if you are a glass half empty kind of person, you look at the story in Numbers 14 and you start to stress out. And you're starting to go, oh man, their unbelief, their disobedience kept them from the promised land. We've got to be careful. There's all these warnings, there's all these lessons. But he is going to transition into another way of looking at Psalm 95, which is a glass half full kind of perspective. Which is, notice what God was doing here. He was trying to lead his people into the promised land. God had promised his people rest. He says, let's focus for a little bit on the promise that God had given his people, on his intentions and desires for them. He had saved them and then given them the promise that I'm going to bring you to this land. And in Exodus, he calls the land a good land flowing with milk and honey. His desire for them was that the land would be good. He was bringing them into life. He had this promise that he laid out for his people. And so, yes, when we look at the story, there's all these warnings about unbelief and disobedience. But then there's also God's character. There's also his plan and intention for his people, that he comes to his people and he says, come find rest. Come find the future that I'm bringing you towards. And now, in the Old Testament, a few times, uh, it's called rest, this promised land. It's called rest, a place where you can stop and just be, where you can exist, where you don't have to wonder, where you don't have to flee from enemies, you don't have to fear for your safety. Um, And one of these places is Deuteronomy 12. Uh, If you have a Bible, flip to Deuteronomy 12, or you can just listen. We'll be in verse 8. Um, But here the scriptures call this promised land a rest and then show more of the character, more of of what this rest was supposed to be about. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, we'll pick up in verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow before the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance within you. Okay, we see here um, the land represented to the Israelites and a gift from God, the blessings of safety. You, you see this here at the end of verse 10. He's going to give you rest from your enemies. He's going to make you live in safety. To a people that have been oppressed, have been enslaved, have had violence coming against them, this is an amazing promise. I'm bringing you safety. You won't have to fear for your life anymore. If you keep reading in verse 11, he's talking about all these burnt offerings that are going to become, all, all these contributions, these finest 
um, great offerings. And now the, the implication behind that is that the Israelites are going to have a lot to offer to God. It's going to be good offering too. They're going to be blessed. They're going to find wealth. They're going to find life. There's this deep life that God says is going to be found in the promised land. And then also as you keep reading, when you get there, rejoice. When you get there, praise me. When you get there, worship. Live in my presence. Let my name dwell there. This land, it represented to them these promises of safety and of deep life and of worship. Um, and now this promise um, to enter into the land traces back to Genesis 12. So we talk about Genesis 12 a lot here. Genesis 12 is when God comes to Abraham and says, Hey, through you, I'm picking you, through you and your family, Israel, I'm going to undo the fall. I'm going to fix what has gone wrong in creation. So he comes uh, to Abraham after 11 chapters of sin and evil and rebellion and says, This is how I'm going to fix it. I will call Israel and somehow redeem the world. I'll bless them so that they'll be a blessing. And entering into this land was part of his cosmic plan for all of creation. So God commits to undoing the fall and bringing back creation's peace. This land, this rest was part of God's large project where he looks at creation, gone astray, and he says, I'll fix this. I'm going to undo this. This death that you brought in, this pain, this sin, I'm bringing back this Genesis 1 and 2 peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word. I'm bringing it back. And to do that, I'm bringing you into rest. I'm bringing you into this land. So Hebrews now wants to look at this promise. Look at this promise that God had given the Israelites. Yeah, they didn't live up to it. Yeah, they fell short of it. But he had promised them that. He had led them up to the borders. He was giving them rest, safety, deep life, worship. Now, it is impossible, if we go back to Hebrews 4, um, to, to look at the story and to talk about this without, again, a sense of warning uh, and a sense of, Hey, learn a lesson here. Things can go bad. So he says, let us fear, in verse 1, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He said, the promise was guaranteed to those who believed. To those who would hear it, believe on it, in it, and then act in faith, and then walk, take steps of obedience. Um, good news simply hearing good news is not enough he's saying here he's saying if you look at what happened to the israelites and what happened to us we both heard good news so to them they heard the good news of you will be rescued from slavery you will be brought into the promised land you and i hear the good news that christ has defeated our sin has forgiven us and is bringing us into everlasting eternal life but he's saying the difference here is they did not believe the good news they didn't act on it they didn't take root in their hearts they just heard it He's saying to us that the good news should lead to obedience. When we hear good news, it should lead to obedience. Now this makes church attendance a very scary thing. Because it means that you could theoretically go to church for 50 years and hear all kinds of good news. But if it never takes root in your soul, if it never leads you to action, what's happening there? Hearing good news really doesn't do you very much. James, if you flip to James, um, it's right after Hebrews, so just a few pages to your right. James chapter 1, he'll say this. James 1, we'll pick it up in verse 22. But be doers of the word, of the message you hear, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in a mirror intently at his natural face. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty... 
and perseveres, being no hearer, but uh, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here's the analogy here. If, if the person who hears the word but doesn't do it is like a person with some kind of short-term memory problem. And he looks in the mirror and he's like, okay, I look good today. Then he walks away and he forgets. I mean, in the end, I mean, it's just kind of a useless, I mean, draw yourself a picture. Do something that if you're going to forget, there's no point looking in a mirror. I mean, you're just kind of wasting your time. As we're saying, you're hearing the word, but you're not doing it. I mean, what, what in the end are you accomplishing? And then he says, doing the word, that's where the blessing is found. That's where the life is found. When you hear it, then you do it. Um, there's a pastor in Dallas um, that I love, and he says that uh, a lot of Christians are spiritual bulimics. And what he means by that is that um, we consume. I mean, we consume a lot. We live in an age, a culture, I mean, just go to any bookstore, Christian bookstore, even Barnes & Noble, and there's all kinds of stuff for you to consume. Bible studies, good stuff. There's unlimited podcasts for you to listen to. <laughs> We consume, and we consume, and we consume, and we consume. But what happens to most of us is we get in the car, and we throw it up. And it doesn't actually take root in our bodies and our souls. It doesn't actually grow us or mature us or lead us into change. We just consume and consume and consume, and somewhere along the way, it gets regurgitated. It doesn't actually take effect in our life. Good news, simply hearing it, that's not enough, he's saying. It should lead to obedience. It should lead to obedience. And then he, he continues on here in verse 3, and he says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Okay, so the author starts to zone in and, and hone in on this word, my rest, these words. And he's saying that the rest that God was inviting them into was somehow called his rest. It was God's rest. And he goes, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he looks and, and finds in Genesis 2, if you remember the story, he quotes here from Genesis 2 too, um, God creates, and he, for six days, creates, 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 and he steps back and rests. He steps back and rests. Um, we should be concerned with our response. Uh, some things are okay to be afraid of. Sorry, I missed those two blanks. Um, he says, let us fear, right? And we skip that in verse 1 here. He says, let us fear... Lest we, should, lest we should miss it. Lest we should fail to reach the promised land. The number one command in scripture is do not be afraid. Over and over and over again. The greatest command in scripture. Over and over and over again. Do not be afraid. And here it says let us fear. Because some things, if it's life or death, are okay to be afraid of, of, of. So be concerned with your response. Again, put a pulse on it. Watch yourself. Do you hear and then just go away? Or do you hear and then do? Do you act? Do you hear the gospel? Do you hear... God's leading you into life, and then let that change your life. But then he quotes Genesis 2-2, uh, the story uh, where God is creating, um, and then he steps back and takes a rest. And, and the, the promise uh, here in Psalm 95 is an invitation into God's own rest. It's a rest that he has. And in Genesis 2-2, when God rests, um, it's real interesting because God doesn't get tired. I mean, God, he's not stepping back after six days and going, oh man, that was killer. Nap time. Jesus, Holy Spirit, hold it down. That's not, that's not what he's doing. He's instead painting us a picture. He's saying, this is, this is what life looks like. I, I work and then I rest. And since he had been resting, since creation, the promise goes out, come enter my rest. Come enter the life that I have. 
I'm entering into my rest. And so God has enjoyed the Sabbath since the end of creation, um, which means that it's always existed uh, because his works were done at the foundation of the world. So it existed before the promise went out to the Israelites, come enter into my rest. And it's one more picture given to communicate God's desire for us. As the God of creation, who does not tire, who does not need to break, steps back and says, let there be peace. Let me rest. Then he comes to his people. And what's the promise? Come enter into my rest. I have healing. I have wholeness. I have forgiveness. Let me lead you into my rest. Into the, the promised land. Now let's keep reading. Verse 6 here. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long after him, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, he's saying here, the promised land, it was just a shadow of God's ultimate rest, of what he was ultimately intending for his people. That it was a pointer. It was meant to show us a small picture of what he truly had intended for his people. Uh, so just like, we'll take communion here in a second. We do that every week here at uh, First Colony. Um, and it's not, I mean, we take a piece of the bread, we dip it in the grape juice, and, and what that is doing is it's a shadow. I mean, it points us toward Jesus on a cross dying, a real body, real blood given for you and I, for our sins. It's a pointer. It's a shadow. It's, it's showing us. It's leading us to the reality of the truth that I was trying to communicate. And here's what the scriptures are saying. Um, notice here, what he does is it's really fascinating. He wants to make a point with the history of how it's the rest, how God's rest, his promise has been talked about. So what he's going to do is he's going to lay out a timeline for us and go watch the way it's been talked about. And then it's going to lead us to Jesus and to the rest that he's promised us. So if you know the story, um, Joshua leads them into the promised land. He leads them into the rest. Uh, so the wilderness generation dies. They disobey. They die in the wilderness. Um, but their kids get to go in as well as Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who had faith and, and tried to get the people to obey. Um, they go in. But if you know the story, um, things weren't quite perfect in the promised land. I mean, they were pretty chaotic for almost the whole time that they've ever been there. So you have the period of the judges, where it's just sin, 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 rebellion, chaos. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they get there and they go, this can't be what God had meant for us. Maybe there's something bigger, something more ultimate, something in the future that this is just a shadow of, that this is pointing us towards. And then in Psalm 95, you have David, King David, writing hundreds of years after Joshua entered into the rest, and he does what? He says, today, if you hear his voice, enter his rest. So David, 400 years later, is still talking about a rest as some sort of future thing. King David yearned for a future and more ultimate rest as well. If you remember, King David had an empire, had lots of wealth, had lots of victory, and yet he is in the promised land going, hey, there's a future rest today. Believe, don't miss out on it. It's the shadow. They're coming to realize it's the shadow of what God is truly intending us to do and to be a part of and to experience. And the scriptures are saying, 
that the reality of God's promised rest is what Jesus is leading us towards. The reality that these shadows were pointing towards is what Jesus is leading us to. Um, now in the Greek, um, Joshua, the English words, talk, the names Joshua and Jesus are the same word in the Greek. The same exact word. So some of your translations, not a lot of them, but some uh, might actually translate verse 8 as for Jesus had led them into the rest. Most go with Joshua. I think that's the best decision. Um, but there's this wordplay happening here between Joshua and Jesus. Joshua who leads them into the rest, but it's not actually the rest that they were looking for, that they were promised. And then Jesus who's leading them into the true rest. Who's leading us into, the scriptures would say, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, that can't be moved. The promise of um, forgiveness of sins, no pain, no death, no tears. Um, a close walk with God where we see him face to face, where we know him fully as he knows us. A resurrected body. That's the promise that after we die, we'll be resurrected to live on a new heavens and a new earth forever with Christ. That's the picture of the promised land, of the true rest painted by the scriptures. Heaven and earth recreated, combined in a marriage, like a wedding. God dwelling with us, us walking with him. No death, no pain, no tears. So we're saying that's the real rest that Jesus is leading us towards, that this was just a shadow of, that's the reality, and we are on the brink of it. We are right before it happens, right before it's fulfilled in our midst. And so then um, he continues, and he says the, the promise of Sabbath rest, it remains available. So this word Sabbath you get from Genesis, uh, when God rests, Sabbath just means stop working. Um, and then the Hebrew people were commanded, as, as well as us, I think, to take a break from our work weekly. Um, and remember God and just be still uh, and recharge. Um, the Sabbath rest, this true Sabbath rest, entering into God's rest, entering into healing, wholeness, forgiveness, it remains open. It remains available for you and I. And even, even at this very moment, the invitation goes forth. Even at this very moment, the invitation of, of God coming and saying, come enter my rest. Come enter into my rest that I've been enjoying since the beginning of creation. So at 12.35, on Sunday morning in Sugarland, Texas, God comes to individuals and he whispers, his word goes out, his message, and he says, enter my rest. I have prepared a place for my people, a place of beauty and glory, satisfaction, fulfillment, a place of safety and deep life and worship. Enter. This is the promise that went out to the Israelites and that remains for you and I, the people of God, right before it's fulfilled. I want you to notice um, that there's a present aspect as well as a future fulfillment to this. Um, so if you look in verse 3 here, For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is um, present tense here. We who believe enter that rest. It's not will enter, we enter it. And there's a sense in the scriptures where eternal life starts now. I mean, it starts when we believe. Jesus himself and John is going to say eternal life is knowing God and Jesus whom he sent. Which is something that starts now. In a very real sense, eternal life, the life of eternity is opened up to you and I. Freedom from sin, a closeness with God. And then in another real sense throughout this passage, you will enter. Strive to enter. Work to enter. It's a future, it's a not yet thing as well. 
It's something that is coming, that's on its way. There's both this present aspect to it where we start to enjoy it and we start to enter into it. And then there's this future longing for the day that it's complete, for the day that it's, it's all that there is. And this is the promise that goes out. And then he says this in verse 11, look, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He says, we've got to work to find the rest. Notice the paradox here. This is interesting. We must strive to enter into the rest. You'll see a lot of paradoxes like this in Scripture. We're entering into rest, a ceasing from work or relaxation, but we've got to work to get there. We've got to strive. We've got to press forward. We've got to press in. We've got to watch ourselves and watch others around us. Why again? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Disobedience still threatens to lead us astray as God's people. And this is the warning from last week. If you don't believe, and then you start to disobey, there's a very real danger that you're going to miss out on what God had promised you. You must finish the race. You must hold fast to your faith. You must continue pressing in towards the promised, towards eternal life. Now, in verse 12, let's keep reading. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Um, so here he's, he's giving us really one of God's guides into the promised land. One of the things that God provides us with to, to get us into the promise, to, to lead us toward the future that he has prepared for us. Now, one of the confusing things about reading scripture is that oftentimes you'll see one word or maybe a pair of words or a phrase that means different things in different places. Well, this phrase, the word of God or God's word is one of those. In some places, it's simply his word. I mean, what he says, what he speaks. In some places, it seems to be the scriptures. Probably just the Old Testament at this time. The New Testament wasn't done. It wasn't finished. In some places, so in John 1, what does the Word of God mean? Jesus. Jesus. Good job. Jesus. The Word of God is a title for Jesus. So here, what, what does it mean here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, with this passage, he ends his commentary on Psalm 95. And he kind of wraps up what he's been saying about his sermon on it. So he starts in 3-7 with this long quotation from Psalm 95. And then he ends with another encouragement about what the Word of God does. And this suggests to many people that this phrase, Word of God, here, it means the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament. And then the message, the preaching about how they came true in Jesus. This is actually a quote um, from N.T. Wright's commentary, a resource that some of you have. Uh, we made it available to me in the series. If you want one still, you can get one. Um, but this is right out of his commentary. Um, this is what the Word of God here means. It's the scriptures and what they do, and then the message about how they all came true in Jesus. Now notice here, the way the author uses Psalm 95 is actually an example of what he's talking about. He's saying, look at, look at how God speaks, both in Numbers and then through David in Psalm 95, and look at how it works in our lives. Look at how it warns us and encourages us and spurs us on toward the future. And so he describes that the word of God is living and active. He personifies it sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden. They'll all be judged. They'll all give an account. This is the word of God. It's powerful. It's sharp. It's discerning. 
all adjectives describe that it's, it's alive. I mean, it's effective, it's working, it's creating, it's molding, it's shaping, it's chiseling away. It's leading us, his message, his revelation into life, into the future. And finally, life is found in opening ourselves up to God's revelation. So God, he reveals himself to us, in, and we'll talk about this in our Knowing God's Will series, but he, he reveals himself to us in all these different ways. So through scripture, um, through sermons, through worship, uh, through friends, through art for some people, through nature. I mean, he reveals himself in all these different ways. And, and what the scripture is saying here is, you and I need to open ourselves. We need to allow that to change us, to move us. Uh, as, over my time here at FCQ, uh, a little over two years with you guys, um, I've, I've come to the realization that I think most of us aren't in the scriptures as much as we maybe should be. And I think most of us realize that. I think most of us would probably say, I mean, if we're honest and we sat down, I should probably be in the scriptures more than I should be. We just finished a before-week class on how to read your Bible. Um, a lot of that was just trying to get us involved, trying to get us plugged in um, to the scriptures. I think there's a lot of reasons we're not maybe as faithful with the scriptures as we want to be, or maybe should be. Um, one of which is, I mean, sometimes they can be hard to read. Sometimes they can be confusing, uh, which is you know, why we had that class. Um, another one is, I mean, even you look at how the author used Psalm 95, and and as a preacher, I, I kind of try to lay up my thinking skills and my, like, how, how would I write a sermon about Psalm 95 if Hebrews wasn't written? And I'm like, oh, man, I don't think I would have gotten that point. Like, that was, that was brilliant. That was great. I don't think I would have saw that in there. You can see him take a text and apply it to his life and apply it to the people around us. And some of us, we go, I can't do that. I, mean, I just don't have the skills to do that. It's something that takes time and practice and help from other people. And some of us, when we, we open up the scriptures, one of the things it does is it, it discerns our hearts. That's what it says here. It, it pierces us. So we lay our lives up against the scriptures, and it's an uncomfortable thing. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And we've been taught our whole lives that when there's something uncomfortable like that, you need to back away. Avoid it. Numb yourself. Go entertain yourself. When in reality, what you need to do, at least in this situation, is keep pressing in. Keep going closer. That's what he's saying here. The word of God, let his message, let his revelation prod you and shape you and mold you and chisel you. Let it work in your heart to lead you, to prepare you for the future that he has laid out for us. This is what he's saying here in his his little two-part sermon on Psalm 95. As we look at the Israelites, we look at them in a situation that's very similar to ours. We see all these things that we need to avoid and need to be careful of. And then we also see this promise that he had given to them. That even when they went into the land, they realized it wasn't, it wasn't quite ready. It wasn't quite all that God had promised them. And then hundreds of years later, they're still saying, the rest is coming. Prepare your heart for the rest. And then in Jesus, we see the reality. We see what God had been planning to do all along as he promises his people that rest as part of, again, his cosmic plan to fix what was wrong in creation. As we enter into the promised land, as we enter into this new heavens, this new earth, this rest that he's promised us, he steps back and says, it's finished. I've reconciled the world to myself. I've taken sin and evil out of my good creation. But now we reign for eternity together with safety and deep life and worship. This is the promise sent out that even today, at this moment, stands before you and I. Broken, messed up, 
people with, with past and with failures, with sins that we're struggling with right now, with, with personality flaws. When he whispers, his word comes and says, enter my rest. Enter into my rest. In a certain sense, I think that a little bit of discontentment is a good thing for the Christian. So, I mean, you'll have the, the passage in Paul in Philippians where he says, I've learned to be content in every situation. So whether I have a lot, whether I don't have very much, I'm content. Whether my relationships are going good or they're not going good, I'm content. Um, no matter what my life circumstance is outwardly, I'm content in who God is and what he is for me and provides for me. Um, but then even in that same letter in Philippians, you'll have Paul saying, um, not that I've been perfected, not that I've attained the goal, but I press on toward the future. I'm still looking for what I'm after. Which, I mean, it's interesting in itself because Paul is kind of a superhero of the faith. His handkerchief heals people. He's, he preaches and there's a riot. Like they flip cars over. I mean, somebody please. I've got maybe 30 more years of preaching. I just want a car flipped over, set on fire, and I'll be happy. But this guy, Paul, he, he steps back and goes, Man, I'm not there. I'm so far from where I will be and where I need to be. And so I press on, I work, I strive to get there. So I think in a sense, discontentment is a good thing for us. Where we sit back and we go, there's so much more for me to grow. There's so much more for me to press in. I'm not here yet. My heart is not ready yet. There's much more of the gospel to believe. There's much more to hold on to. There's much more to know about God and who he is and how he loves us and treats us and expects from us. There's much more for me to learn about joining him on his mission about being ministers of reconciliation, this discontentment where we look at the promise before us when we strive to enter it, we work towards it. So we mentioned last week, a lot of this is, is looking at it maybe from our perspective and, and from God's perspective, he who he holds in his hands, I mean, can't be lost. I mean, there's, there's not a scenario where Mike Skinner, myself, can, can somehow miss out on the rest that he has promised me. I mean, it's not... He's in control. He, he says, what I've begun, I'll finish. I'm his. But then when you look here, you have that tension, this command, our perspective. Don't, don't let unbelief creep into your heart. Don't disobey. Strive to enter into that rest. God, I mean, in all these different pictures, it's one of the things I love about just life in general, not even just the scriptures, but life, is God paints these pictures for us all over the place. I mean, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not developing this, you need to start developing an ability to see the gospel and things around you. Because it's all over the place. And these little pictures of how God loves us, how He takes care of us, of who He is. And this is a large part of what, what preaching is. I mean, when you use an example, you're just saying, hey, I saw the gospel here. I saw who Christ is here. Friday night, I was hanging out with um, my little autistic buddy, Spencer, and, and we'll see his parents on the video next week. Um, and as I'm just hanging out with him, as I'm thinking about how much he's loved and how much his parents take care of him, um, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed. I mean, this is who God is for me, and I can't take care of myself, and I can't, I don't know what's happening all around me all the time, but people love me, people come in and take care of me, people guide me. We need to have our eyes open to what God's doing around us. And here, he's saying very clearly that we have this picture of rest, and now you and I are right on the brink of its fulfillment. So let's believe, let's obey. Let's strive to enter it. Let's pray. Father, I uh, thank you for this morning.
I thank you for your scriptures and for the chance to study um, and to open them. I pray that you would allow them to be effective in our lives, in our hearts, and our minds, um, that we would see you and love you and worship you, that we would enter into this rest even today and look forward for the day when we enter into it ultimately. We thank you for the cross, our salvation bought and purchased and guaranteed. We thank you for your love and your grace, for the Holy Spirit that comes and guides us. We thank you for the task that you've given us in this world, in our communities, to the people around us. We ask that we be faithful. We need you. We ask that the people in our lives would know that we're your servant and you are our God. Be with us. Bless us. Guide us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.